Well, uh, good evening and welcome to another edition of Gray Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. My name is Dick Whaley. And uh, just arriving in the nick of time, I'm Jim Dwyer. We have matching shirts, sort of. Oh, hey, that's the same. Same logo. Different colors. Yep, the old uh, freeform, in freeform we trust. Yes. Well, we won't say any of the seven dirty words. No, but uh, I do think it's worth talking about George Carlin uh, ever so briefly uh, for a couple of reasons. Who, interestingly, by the way, started out apparently as a DJ. As a DJ, indeed. Uh, In fact, uh, very kind of strange coincidence, or maybe not such a strange coincidence, given the uh, electricity that flows throughout the universe. Last night, uh, at the end of the school year, I've got a lot of papers to clean up, reorganizing, resorting, cleaning out the old study, and I thought, I'll listen to some George Carlin tonight while I (laughs) sort out my papers. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I listened to uh, Class Clown, uh, a record that had a big impact on me as a teenager Mm -hmm. when I first heard it uh, back in the mid-70s. And, uh, oh, chuckling to myself as I listened to the old classic record, uh, you know, went to bed, found out this morning uh, that, of course, George Carlin had indeed passed away yesterday. Um, an important comedian. Uh, he dealt a lot with radio, even though much of his material couldn't be played on the radio mm-hmm. because of its free use of everyday speech. But his first actual album on uh, his most famous run of albums uh, was called AM and FM. And from early on, I think he explored the ways in which radio defines the American uh, culture, a very different mindset, even still today, amongst those who listen to AM and FM Mm -hmm. radio, Mm -hmm. politically, culturally, uh, lots of interesting differences there that can be observed in such a superficial thing as AM or FM. Um, He famously, uh, as a novice beginning comic, uh, punched a cop in the face just so he could be uh, taken downtown in the same police car uh, that Lenny Bruce was being arrested in. Mm. Uh, And I always kind of admired him for that. Yeah, I heard an interesting anecdote. Actually, I was listening to some uh, NPR this afternoon, and a a guy called in during the George Carlin tribute, whatever, a police officer who told the funny story of how he let George Carlin go after pulling him over and Apparently, he rolled down the windows, and an enormous <laughs> quantity of marijuana smoke <laughs> came billowing out. And the cop uh, realized who he was and just sort of said, mm, well, obey the speed limit. <laughs> Go home safely, George. Go home safely, and, uh, c- you know, can can you give me your autograph? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, he Here's did- a blank traffic ticket <laughs> right uh you know he did bring counterculture humor to the mainstream uh photos of him on the mike douglas show you know with john and yoko on one side and there's george carlin and there's good old middle of the road mike douglas so mm-hmm. there's some interesting things uh to be said there too of course um i actually have i brought down with me a uh uh, George Carlin CD on the road live stuff and this is a kind of an interesting this is a short little bit we'll pay about a minute and 49 seconds worth on uh, linguistics and death and of course he talks about death in this piece so it's fitting uh, to play on this day but really he was a sort of a self-educated uh, 
linguistic philosopher. Mm -hmm. And I think his approach to, to humor and comedy is important in that regard. The seven words that you can't say on uh, television, uh, of course, made it to the Supreme Court. Um, and they were making uh, a lot of use of uh, the interview clips with him over the years on that this morning on NPR. I heard a chunk of that. Yeah, Lewis Black actually made an interesting observation that his monologues actually almost sounded like music. Hmm. There was a certain rhythm. Yeah, a lot um, of sound effects. And, and the, the way he was able to uh, cobble together um, coherent thoughts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, so let's listen now uh, to about a minute and 50 seconds of uh, vintage George Carlin. Jeez, I hope I don't die. Oh, by the way, you're all going to die. <laughs> I didn't mean to remind you of it, but uh, it is on your schedule. Yeah. <laughs> Won't come when you want. It's always off a little. What? Now, here on the freeway? Mm-hmm. Thought surely I'd be home lying down. <laughs> Comics are supposed to worry about dying, you know? Don't want to die out there, man. Jeez, I was dying. It was death out there. Like a morgue. On the other hand, if he succeeds, if he makes you laugh, he can say, I killed him. Knocked them dead. Why is there so much violence mixed up with comedy, you know, which should be so much fun? It's all dying bombing. He bombed, or else he was a riot. A real scream. I cracked up laughing at him. He broke me up too. I busted a gut laughing. My friend was in stitches. He fractures me with his punchlines and his gags. <laughs> Slapstick. Knee slapping, side splitting, rib splitting, gut busting. Laugh, I thought I'd die. Thank you, Engineer Alex. Uh, the late, great George Carlin. Uh, FM radio wouldn't be what it is and without his body of work. Stay tuned to WCBN this week. One of the great advantages of having a free forum network is that you can hear George Carlin uh, in copious amounts. Uh, and I'm sure that uh, you can count on Sue Dice, <laughs> for one, to play some George Carlin. Um, guaranteed. Absolutely. Well, uh, that having been said, uh, there was no shortage of strangeness in the last week. Yeah. Well, I think one of the stranger things was hearing about George Bush, uh, apparently, when he uh, visited London this past week on his farewell tour. He posed under a portrait of Elizabeth I. This is courtesy of Maureen Dowd. And said, quote, this is going to be my White House Christmas card. <laughs> I thought Elizabeth the first. Um, I was Queen thinking Bess. more more like George the <laughs> third. You're a raven lunatic, dude, and I 
I think you are George the Third in terms of American presidents named George. Yeah, did he confuse this portrait with somebody else? Uh, I mean, Queen Elizabeth the First, very interesting historical figure. She's yeah. really the marks the beginning of the ascent of the what would become the British Empire. He marks a marked decline. <laughs> yeah, the Spanish Armada, 1588. Yeah, and daughter of Henry the Eighth. Uh, she survived his beheading mania. Oh, those many years. Uh, so we'll give him a brain damage award. Um, I think it's pretty scary when George Bush is, you know, wax, waxing nostalgic about how uh, right the war in Iraq is. Apparently, in an interview uh, with the London Observer. About the infamous weapons of mass destruction, he said, quote, still looking for them, unquote. We didn't realize, not did anybody else, that's classic George Bushism, that Saddam Hussein felt like he needed to play like he had weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> oh, that rascally Saddam. He, yeah. was, he was just playing. It may have been, however, that in his mind... All of this was just a bluff. Well, that's actually what it was. Um, but he it wasn't in Saddam's mind. <laughs> wanted to make <laughs> others God. think that it was uh, that he had them, uh, including his neighbor Iran. And uh, it's also reassuring to know that Mr. Bush is going to set up a Freedom Institute. Yes, he's talked about this uh, in, in recent his weeks. Presidential yeah. Library, um, where quote one of the things that I will leave behind is a multilateralism to deal with tyrants, so problems <laughs> can be solved diplomatically. Oh wow, <laughs> that would be a good legacy. Uh, w confessed only to quote hopeless idealism on Iraq and Afghanistan, and he said, quote, history will judge whether or not, you know, more troops were needed earlier. Troops could have been positioned here better or not. But going in, he said, was the right, was right, despite the, quote, doubters, unquote. There is some who say that perhaps freedom is not universal, unquote. And uh, Maureen Dowd notes, he asserted, adding that <clears throat> he rejected as elitist the notion that, quote, maybe it's only, you know, white guy Methodists who are capable of self-government. <laughs> uh, I, I look the, the palaces of Britain for portraits of George III. Um, he apparently had some mental problems late in life. <laughs> and uh, I believe George Bush... Um, needs uh, if he's looking some time for, on the couch. Yeah, for a past monarch uh, with whom to compare himself, uh, George the Third is the guy, if not quite King Leopold of ben Belgium. And yeah, to be guilty of hopeless idealism is not quite a description of our uh, wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Alas. Guilty of needless war crimes, yeah, perhaps. <laughs> Hopeless or to suggest that this is somehow multilateralism with tyrants. Um, my goodness, there's all kinds of tyrants alive and well 
uh, including Robert Mugabe. We may as well right. give him a brain damage award for forcing uh, presidential candidate. Uh, oh, I'm drawing a blank on the fellow's name, but he apparently sought um, political refuge today in uh, one of the European embassies as, uh, mm. quote, political opponents were arrested. And, uh, well, there's a tyrant for you. Anyway, uh, George Bush uh, is a lost cause when it comes to reality. But, as we used to joke around about a guy in high school, he's starting to emerge as Kurt Gowdy. He's a sort of an expert at everything. <laughs> um, now, he wants to drill for oil off Florida and California in a remarkable effort to, quote, Deal with the price problem. This is amazing. Uh, all the experts point out that it takes at least eight years to even get a drop of that oil anywhere on the market. And that this will, quote, not reduce America's dependence on foreign oil. And, all this, you know, the number of variables that are in play that we've outlined in the past couple of weeks, this huge list of variables yeah. that are really at the heart of this uh massive increase that we've seen in oil prices given eight years time you know how many things are going to change that that might even render any new discoveries moot yeah for example recently the saudis offered to start pumping more well then the rebels in nigeria succeed in shutting down a major mm -hmm. uh, site on offshore uh, drilling site a night raid on the facility known as the bonga field this is a incredibly uh, sounding. Uh, the description of this compound is incredible. It's 100 kilometers offshore. It's 12 stories high. Yeah. And this rebel group, uh, they call themselves Movement for the Emancipation of the Niger Delta. A uh, very clever uh, acronym made out of that there, MEND. And uh, they uh, seek a redistribution of petroleum wealth. And uh, that's... Not too difficult to see why they'd be upset about that when you consider the military dictatorship that's run Nigeria for decades. And Nigeria, needless to say, those dictators have looted unbelievable sums of money. I mean, they make um, Mobutu look like a petty criminal. Yeah, for sure. And, and uh, you know, another classic thing is just in recent weeks, uh, we, we hear a lot of uh, experts uh, talking about the the oil issue because it's obviously on everyone's mind. It's it's uh, changing things as we know it. I talked about this uh, several months ago when I observed that this four dollar threshold had, mm -hmm. had just occurred and that things were going to change in America uh, whether we liked them or not. Uh, we're seeing this all over the place. We're seeing that uh, with recent announcements by Ford and Chrysler and General Motors that they're actually going to furlough. Uh, Thousands of workers that are making big SUVs and yeah, pickups. Surprise, surprise. And SUVs whatnot. aren't selling. Yeah, they're not selling. They have too much inventory on the lots. Nobody wants to buy them. Nobody wants to own them. Um, but look at the saber-rattling of Israel. We have a just uh, two weeks ago when, uh, when oil skyrocketed over uh, $130 a barrel, that was uh, the direct result of some saber-rattling by... 
the the defense minister of the Israeli government, that's the putative successor to Olmert, who's engaged in a uh, Shaul Mofaz is uh, his na- is his name, I think. Um, as Olmert is in, in, engaged in a scandal, and we have, of course, a story last week uh, uh, broke by the New York Times that. Uh, the United St- that Israel is actually wargaming for uh-huh. airstrikes against Iran, um, and on the issue, by the way, of enriched uranium, um, a uh, noted physicist from Britain, Norman Dombey, in an article in the London Review, Review of Books that he wrote several years ago, has pointed out repeatedly that enriched uranium does not create a bomb. It's highly enriched uranium. And that uranium actually has to have a certain purity of staggering scientific precision. Um, just getting a chunk of uranium uh, in a suitcase, so to speak, does not create a nuclear bomb, uh, contrary to the sort of mythology that the media promotes on this issue. This is highly technical stuff. And... Uh, why is Israel entitled to nuclear weapons in the region? You know, it's it's these problems right. that the United States is overlooking. Recently, uh, I read uh, a book. I don't have the title of the book with me, but a very interesting article about sprawl and the automobile, quote, entitled, it's by Hank Detmer. It's called Sprawl, the Automobile and Affording the American Dream. And this is interesting stuff. I wanted to read a paragraph or two from this because I think it uh, sheds quite a bit of uh, light on the problem here in the United States. This was a book published a couple of years ago. He writes, in 1998, there were uh, 184 million licensed drivers in the United States and 207 million licensed motor vehicles. In other words, more motor vehicles than drivers. That's frightening in and of itself. Uh, He then goes on to note that uh, for many decades, transportation analysts warned of the economic impact of the saturation of the domestic auto market as the ratio of drivers to cars neared one-to-one, but the nation reached the supposed saturation point and kept going. Now we view cars as lifestyle objects, and we need multiple vehicles for our many faceted lives or our many faceted fantasy lives in 1995 91% of all households owned at least one car and 59% of households owned at least two the wealthier the household is the more vehicles it owns in 1995 household in uh, households with incomes under 20,000 owned uh, an average of 1.3 vehicles while households with incomes over 80,000 owned 2.4 Rising motor vehicles uh, ownership has also encouraged uh, is encouraged by government policies. The federal government has subsidized the construction of roads and highways, kept gas prices low, and because of pressure from special interest lobbies, greatly limited the availability of alternative modes of transportation. In 2000, Ad Magazine estimates that the seven largest automobile manufacturers spent. billion on advertising for new cars, while the United States government 
invested $7 billion for mass transit. That's just advertising, folks. Uh, gives you a picture of our misplaced priorities these many years. Uh, he continues, I just wanted to read a couple of other interesting observations. Uh, the federal government offered states 90 cents for each 10 cents that they contributed towards the construction of national highway networks, and the result was an increase in paved road mileage from 1.2 million miles in 1960 to 2.4 million in 1998. Total lanes uh, grew even more dramatically. During the same period, driving grew by over 300%, an average of 9.6%. And by the way, recently they've just announced, the federal government has just announced that highway-driven miles has finally declined for the first time in American history. Uh, but, of course, it's way more than it used to be. Um, he goes on to write that um, the average household's uh, average um, commuter crawl in terms of where they work versus where they live has increased. This is average. This is startling. From 8.5 miles to 11.6 miles. Um, and this is uh, work trip. So, yeah. This is essentially, <laughs> this is average, and uh, if you think about it, I mean, you know, five work days a week. We've, we've now heard announcements all over the country. Let's cut the work week down to four days. Right. Should have done that a long time ago for other reasons. And, of course, uh, he goes on to note the, uh, the significant uh, impact of automobiles and uh, carbon dioxide and health problems associated uh, with it. And finally, I just wanted to note this, the American... AAA, estimated that the annual cost of owning and operating a car in 1999 was $7,363. About 75% of that is fixed costs such as car payments and insurance, and this means that there is little financial incentive for drivers to drive less once they've made the investment in a car. Nationally, transportation expenditures account for 17.5% of an average household's budget. That's important info. Uh, you know, the gas fuel costs are about 4 5%, but obviously they're going up. Oh. So it gives you an idea of uh, why this $4 threshold is uh, an impact on the system. And interestingly, the National Research Council estimates that the annual cost from death and injury from automobiles and highways is at $182 billion a year an annual amount equal to the total cost of the entire interstate system. So, are we going to see changes? Uh, just at the margins a little bit. Yeah, I suppose driving habits uh, are, are going to be changing for some. Uh, others, though, I think just kind of plod on a pace. As far as advertising is concerned, to me it's remarkable the sheer number of which, and because we live in the you know, uh, area of uh, Detroit, the sure. traditional manufacturing base for automotive uh, construction. I've always wondered, do we see more car ads per hour of TV time in Southeast Michigan than they do in other parts of the country? And in my travels and in my conversations with people, I find that generally, no, that's not true, which means that the entire nation is being bombarded with these billions of dollars mm -hmm. worth of car ads. I don't know anybody who's ever made a decision about buying a car 
based on an ad. Uh, me neither. So, really, what is the entire point program about? And in a way, it's like political ads. You know, and Obama is opting out of the uh, the public funding uh, for for campaigns for various reasons that we can talk about maybe this week or next. Um, but you know, how many people make a, a decision about a political candidate based on? on advertisement i think probably very few and yet you've got this fundraising apparatus and this billion dollar industry that creates and manufactures advertising in an attempt to manufacture consent and uh what's it all for it's just a lot of wasted money a lot of wasted expenditure and energy and uh it's a it's a form of insanity yeah and i think one of the interesting things is that when i'm not watching pbs or other non-commercial television, it's I'm, I tend to be watching sports, right? And it's fa fascinating the juxtaposition of the car ads, which usually focus on style and horsepower and with, nature. Increasingly, there's yes. some really bizarre car ads that sort of highlight nature. Highlight nature. Our car is so quiet; even little bunny rabbits won't be scared away by it as they drive through the woods. And, well, there's even an ad where the <laughs> The animals are in the car with the driver right. while he's going up a serene Colorado mountain near right. where the, a friendly deer comes out and waves hello. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's all utter nonsense. <laughs> Amazing. But I was going to say that it's fascinating to me when you juxtapose, uh, juxtapose the content of the automobile ads with all the erectile dysfunction ads. <laughs> we have horsepower on the one side, but baby. <laughs> and flaccidity issues on the other. Yeah. But there is definitely a connection. There's a kind of a thing there where... It, and we know this from high school. We know that it was the guys with the, with the muscle cars. That's right. At least back in the 70s. It's it uh, the Bruce Springsteen line, strap your hands, cross my engine. It was the, the those girls wanted to go in those fast cars. And I, I actually grew up in a part of, of Ohio where, you know, the good old boys, the Appalachian boys, could soup up their cars faster than the cops, you know. And, you know, that's the, the NASCAR man. Yep. Uh, at play and at work. In speaking of sports, uh, <laughs> there's been some, uh, you know, the obviously during the hockey playoffs, there was a lot of talk in the uh, NHL community about, oh, attendance down in Detroit. What's up with that? Well, it's the economy. Uh, recent races in Michigan. <laughs> stupid, right? <laughs> at the uh, uh, some recent races um, south of Jackson. The uh, oh, the MIS. MIS, yeah. uh, mm -hmm. which you know, growing up in Jackson, I went to a couple times with some you know uncle who was a race fan and so forth. Uh, big crowds turn up there. It's a pretty big deal. And uh, attendance is down there, too. And you have to wonder, with these petroleum costs and uh, everything uh, going on in the economy, uh, is the NASCAR sporting industry uh, vulnerable? Oh, it's it's doomed in it's, the long it's term. It's hurting. Because, let's face it, their fans get there in big pickups. And traveling from North Carolina to Michigan, and I'm just throwing out North Carolina because Richard Petty is right from North Carolina, and uh, they're certainly one of the, the biggest uh, race car state states in terms of the fan base. That must be an extraordinary expense in yeah. a V8 pickup, uh, especially when you've got the coolers uh, weighted down there with uh, Budweiser beer and... <laughs> 
and uh, probably some trout. Uh, we won't go into the Ipsituckee dinner. No. <laughs> For your dining pleasure, they have trout on the menu. It's good eating. <laughs> and uh, some very other interesting dishes. So, yeah, I, I, I read this uh, um, essay by Hank Dittmer because I thought it illustrated quite co- coherently some of the long-term consequences because, as he points out, as the driving has increased, the demand for roads has increased, mm-hmm. and it becomes a self-fulfilling cycle of uh, strangeness in terms of priorities. And I think that it is encouraging when you start hearing reports, and the media is finally reporting on this, about the rapid increase in uh, ridership on mass transit systems around America. But needless to say, what's the problem? The problem is is that the systems themselves are have higher costs and uh, need incredible infusions of capital investment to, to increase their capacity. This is where the federal government should be uh, doing stuff now, well, today. I, yeah, I'm not I, talking about drilling for oil off the coast of San Diego. Uh, just exactly how would our military get out of the harbor? You know, you could even take it back to the end of the Carter administration. We've talked about this uh, document before in years past. Uh, Project 2000, a sort of an environmental survey of energy demands, likely projections of uh, infrastructural concerns, uh, resource questions, you know, water, oil, etc., compiled, composed by scientists and experts, uh, and not completed in time for the final days of the Carter administration. It ends up on Reagan's desk, and Reagan goes, oh, hmm, okay, kind of chucks it off to the side. It ended up getting printed by uh, the good people at Penguin Books, and I read big chunks of it back in the 80s. And uh, a lot of the things that we're talking about, boy, the government should be doing this today, they knew about sure. 30 years ago, yeah. you know, that, oh, there's going to be problems. This will be a concern in the future. It w- wouldn't it be great if we could start working on it now here in the late 70s, uh, working towards improvements and increased civilian participation in mass transit systems? Um, but no, nothing's been done. Well, nothing's been done. And the other thing that's very troubling, if you think about it over the years, as you follow, if, if you followed the public debate, for instance, they've cre- they've created political controversies about issues such as peak oil. Mm-hmm. Are we at peak oil or aren't we? And anybody that says we are is full of it, you know. And the experts come on TV and the radio, and they critique any sensible long-term thinking. In fact, Carter was lampooned. I, Carter was a disaster in so many ways, but he was correct on the energy issue. And he, of course, was lampooned mercilessly for showing up uh, in the famous Cardigan speech, yep. turn down your thermostats, um, putting in the solar panels that cost $2 million into the White House. Reagan, of course, p- promptly ripped them out at God knows what expense. So, yeah, it's this myopia that keeps going on. And also it's the ability of the auto industry uh, and big oil. It's fascinating, for instance, that it turns out that ExxonMobil has funded most of the anti-greenhouse gas science, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. and that they've created a political controversy in the minds of the public that there's some sort of dispute about the evidence. No, there's no dispute about the evidence. The carbon dioxide is increasing. Interestingly, by the way, it was just reported last week that China 
has gone past the United States in total carbon emissions. Now, the United States is still number one in per capita carbon emissions, but this is part of the mix. And I'll just give a